It's intermission time. It's great to get off to the movies. So I had read that you lived and worked in San Francisco. Is that right? So I moved to L.A. this year from San Francisco. And so I wanted to talk to you about it because San Francisco gets a bad rap, especially now, for being kind of a creatively dead city. I think I described it as a nocturnal city for the artists, essentially. And so I wanted to hear about your experience living and working there. And did you feel like you were surrounded by people with a creative spirit? And is there hope for a city like San Francisco in relation to places like New York, LA? Creative centers are like a curious thing, like how to build them, make them thrive. And San Francisco is even more curious because it's this triangle or even a star, right? Because you you have San Francisco, you have Oakland, you have Berkeley, Mm -hmm. you have Marin, Mill Valley, you know, and um, all have very different flavors. Um, but they're in close proximity to each other. And that's really unique. I wanted to go to San Francisco because I felt like the the mix of uh, a history, a, a very creative cultural history, a mix of populations and um, income levels and, and all that, and the ultimately the wealth and innovate, innovative spirit that came out, out of you know the, the tech, tech world could really spark something. And in some ways, I have a, a second city you know, fighter attitude. Like, yeah, tell me I can't do something and mm-hmm. I'm going to get it done. Never got to be number one, so I like to fight to get, get see. At least I can get close enough to, to see the stage, hopefully. Um, and... So San Francisco worked well to kind of bring me in. It was also like a great, I often say it's the golden gateway to Los Angeles for me as a New Yorker, living in San Francisco mm-hmm. proper, being able to, to you know get around. You didn't really need a car Mm-mm. and you got to the West Coast. It made it a little easier to come to Los Angeles for me. But I think what uh, I didn't anticipate and what San Francisco is plagued with is for all those different things, they're worlds apart. Mm-hmm. Like people in Oakland don't go to San Francisco. Yeah. People in Berkeley don't go to San Francisco. San Francisco does. Maybe they go a little bit. When I was there last, you know, I saw one of my really good friends, who's, you know, I think by their own admission, like straight as an arrow, Mister Conformity. And I saw another friend, Boots Riley, who is the opposite you know, uh, of that. Like I could spot boots when we went to the place because he was the one wearing the four foot high hat, <laughs> you know, and, you know, like, whoa. And the the place where those two folks, both who are really creative um, and would never overlap are right there in the same city is really interesting to me. It's also beautiful. Stunning. And everything is so accessible from there. I think it's like the the disparity the 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 uh, of of wealth is such a real challenge there. And then yeah, like people have a you know like will never be like that city attitude as opposed to like let's celebrate exactly what we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I still you know I still have a, my heart's in a good I, I think about it often. I, I did a writing retreat recently to go off to San Francisco and 
you know, just be able to stare at the city and get my work done. It was nice. Yeah, it's an incredible city. I absolutely love it. I'll advocate for San Francisco forever. Do you have, other than the projects you're currently working on that you can't obviously indulge us with what they're about, do you have any stories that you're hoping to still tell specific themes that you haven't been able to work on in past projects? Yeah, I, you know, I was thinking like there, we're, I think we're at a place with this tremendous opportunity and great receptivity to different modes of expression and perspectives. Uh, so, so often like what I d d end up desiring is the opposite of what I'm doing. So I enter something because I didn't get to do it when I was doing the other thing. And I work on it, work on it, and then I start longing for the other thing that I'm not doing. Mm -hmm. So, I and I find that's been a consistent thing. And what's nice is it lets my slate kind of go back and forth between things. So, um, I I have like you know essentially right now like three different let's call them buckets of type of work stuff that is in like the thirty to forty million dollar range and stuff that is in the 10 to $15 million range. But what I really want is that third bucket right now of under $3 million. Mm. I'd like to be able to do a bunch of more inexpensive movies um, from a variety of type of directors. Right now, I'd like to do a bunch of movies focused on what I would say like mad love, right? highly romantic movies that have something inexplicable in them. Um, and you see that, uh, you know, crazy love feeling where somebody is caught up in what they're doing at the expense of everything else. And I think it'd be really interesting to see, say, like 10 filmmakers tackle that theme and do it on a real economy of scale from across the globe, mm. folks doing it all over different places. Um, I would like to see where that comes, how it comes together. Years ago, I raised money for a slate of films that was called Uncensored. And the idea was auteur directors doing movies about sex. And the, we would green light it based on uh, a one page treatment and you got a million dollars. And the only thing you had to do was get an NC-17 rating. The directors were going to be at that time, Lynn Ramsey, Gaspar Noé, Tsai mm. Ming Long, Hal Hartley, and Alfonso Cuaron. A lot of those movies actually ended up getting made. Not Lynn Ramsey's and Gaspar Noé, both who were going to make the same movie. They were both going to do George Bataille's Story of the Eye, if you know what that book is. It's 1920s uh, existential pornography. Just like shocking to this day to read a hundred page book, like blow your mind. And I've seen people reading it on the subway, which I was like, oh <laughs> my God. You have to take a photo. You know, it's like, holy cow. But like actually the thing that was kind of funny about that, um, in the we raised the money and then the money, and we got the directors, and everyone was committed. And then the money said, oh, because so much was home video at that time, I need the directors to make a, an R-rated home videos for the math to, to work. And Gaspar said to me, to do the story of the, the movie is also um, like essentially some teenagers um, 
you know, force a priest into the most sinful series of acts oh, okay. uh, possible. So a lot of it is about like blasphemy of the church. And Gaspar said, to make the story of it I R-rated would be blasphemy to art. You know, I can't, I can't do it. And everything kind of fell apart. Um, it was when Simon Long started to then make these, uh, you know, sexually absurd movies. And Alfonso Cuaron, when he came in, um, like, you know, I told him the idea and he was like, oh, this is really interesting. Um, I think I'd like to do it. I said, well, great. We'll pay you X amount of money. And you just have to write one page and go. He goes, no, 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 no. Let me go write a script and you see if you want to make it. And he brought me the script. And I was like, this is fantastic. We'll do it. He said, but Ted, you said it, you only could do it for $1 million. And I said, yeah, that's all we have. He said, well, I need two. And I said, I can't give you two. Um, he said, it's okay. I have the two. Um, I'm going to make it, and you guys can sell it. Uh, it was E2 Mama Tambien. Oh, wow. You know, and, uh, you know, what a fantastic, beautiful movie that also, I think, you know, transformed his career. He went on to direct Harry Potter after that, blah, blah, blah. Um, started launch Gael's career and mm -hmm. Diego's Luna's career career. And I think that like that type of idea um, often, you know, it's like let these chains set you free. Like you have limits, you know, but you can see, you know, particularly if other folks are engaging and doing it at the same time. Like none of those folks were who they are today that I just mentioned. Um, you know, and you know, an idea like that and the facility to do that, you can have people take bold example, bold things. They end up being in conversation with each other, the, the, the movies. And I think it's not, not like that was, you know, a, about the, 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 these artists making movies about sex. I'd like to see the movies about love right now. Mm. I think we need people to see that compassion, that empathy, and that connection where folks... Are, are you know you see that sparkle on the screen like what was the last great romance you saw on screen i like to think that movies are also kind of um instructions for living they help us understand how to pass through this world and um and i think that like that's a that's a real challenge in this world of distraction how to actually connect deeply with other people um, and so I, I think if we, you know, we're able to make, let's, you know, I'm not too greedy, 15 films over five years and had like this something, let's call it Mad Love Today, that was like a label that represented it, just like you know what a, a Def Jam album is or a Blue Note record or a Sub Pop record, you know what a Mad Love movie was and you say, what are you going to do? Like, this. Like those movies are really romantic. It's how I met my my life partner. Like, like people's lives would be changed. Uh, that would be awesome. Oh yeah, you know? I'm all for that. So anyone out there that you know wants to like that, we have to have a little overhead too. So I think that's like, you know, twenty million bucks, and we'll uh, no, we actually three fifteen. I'm sorry, fifty million dollars. That's all. That's okay. I'm not a numbers girl, but I believe you. <laughs> I, prior to this um, meetup, I watched slash rewatched a few of your movies, um, specifically Dark Horse. I wanted to ask you about the humor in that movie, 
One, how would you describe that type of humor? And how would you describe your personal humor and if it lines up? Like if you're a, a dark humor, a dad joke, what, how is your style of humor? Well, that that movie I would say in some ways is like cringe in a good in a real in a really good way. Like it's like really uncomfortable um, and sad, right? Like I like that kind of awkward thing. Todd Solons is one of my favorite directors, and I feel super lucky to have gotten to make his movies that I did with him, even though some of my favorite ones of him I didn't get to make. Um, but I think I contain multitudes. I think we all contain <laughs> multitudes. And I wouldn't pigeonhole, like, I would love to make a super silly movie, like the airplane movies. Um, did you ever see, what was it called? Um, I, I want a, a town called Panic. Mm-mm. And yeah, so so it's a kids. Oh, he's seen it. It's a kids <laughs> movie made with like little, uh, you know, like army men and figurines, and that's and it's silly is all get out. And I just remember like watching it with my wife and son, and just yeah, you know, loving how mad mad it was, um, in a in a great way. It'd be super fun to make a movie like that. I don't think the world knows how to make make silly movies we know how to make like the r-rated adult silly movie like of you know sausage party or movies <laughs> like that um but i don't think we really know how to make like an all ages silly movie that everyone loves and thinks it, like how do you get there mm -hmm. i like witty rapide you know like the 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 thin man movies and things like that where people just you know talk sharp and funny mm -hmm. um i enjoy that a, a lot i think when we get used to a, a a character um who has this particular type of humor it can be a lot of fun and hard you know like the cary grant type character um yeah there's tons yeah multitudes multitudes then i wanted to ask you also so the movie the devil and daniel johnson that you were part of uh, I left that movie feeling really sympathetic towards him. And I had read some reviews of people almost thinking that a lot of the individuals in his life were taking advantage of his disability for their own success and monetizing his life scenario with his mental illness. Did you have any qualms or feelings about creating this project almost again, adding to the popularity of him as an artist who is deeply troubled? Yeah, well, well Daniel was uh, on the rise as an as a one of America's top selling outsider artists for his drawings at that at that time. And the movie definitely made him into the number one of that place. The movie also uh, definitely kind of lifted his notoriety and you know to the the very end like uh he'd play he when he was playing out he would show the movie beforehand so people come to the concert the concert starts he wouldn't play for two hours because he would screen the 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 movie without like you know paying for it or anything like that but totally entitled to to it I think we're on a uh, 
a greater uh, compassion and understanding for neurodiversity these days. And at that point in time, I think it was really hard to see somebody who was a manic depressive, schizophrenic, and not feel other. Mm. And the, the soul of that film comes through and allowed people to see sometimes how fragile an existence life is. Um, I've seen, I've had too many people close to me go off the deep end and both recover and not recover. And, you know, you see the, the, those things and it's going to happen around all of us in all of our lives. Like America, Americans, probably people of the world, but I can only speak here, are out of their fucking minds. We're all crazy. Um, and, uh, I think that the process of making that movie really helped Daniel a lot and his own um, sense of worth and being loved um, and recognized. But there are also some things that mental illness will never be able to cut through and uh, get us to a different side. Sometimes breakdowns are breakthroughs and sometimes they're not you know, the path of recovery is not going to be there. Um I know I I it's one of the favorite films I've I've done. I think it is actually a very ethical movie. It has some of the challenges that any documentary does in that we can't tell the full story. Mm -hmm. There are things you have to leave out. Unfor you know, not unfortunately, but you know, by choice that, that become revealed in the movie. Um or you don't reveal in the movie, um, but I I think it you know it's interesting that film when when we made it you know one best director at Sundance for documentaries Jeff, Jeff Roizig and um, you know and he's a filmmaker that I look I have other projects with that I look forward to work working with and making more things I think he's a unique artist uh, but it didn't exactly light the world on fire. But you cut to literally 20 years later, and it's always on the list of like the best rock docs ever made. Yeah, it's on every list. Yeah. yeah. And when I, I, was, I was in Taiwan, and uh, the assistant editor comes in and is like, Ted, look at this. And she shows me a photo, and she, I was like, what? She'd gone to, like, it was being released theatrically in Taiwan 15 years after it came out. You know, like, How cool. and there was a new poster, and it was like, wow. And it, you know, literally last month, I got two emails from people who wanted, you know, who are working on Daniel Johnson projects, you know, um, and dreaming of getting the fiction one made. That's always been the case. We'll see what 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 happens, but um, it's a, yeah, I think it's a remarkable film that gave Daniel. Uh, second lease on life, like uh, Harvey Picard in American Splendor. Yeah, I Another, wanted to talk yeah. to you about that too. Yeah. That movie, I have such a soft spot for documentaries. It's another type of movie that I'm always going to gravitate towards. Uh, American Splendor was cool because it's uh, very meta, you know? And I, I actually had a specific question for you about that. Oh, the quote, if I die, will that character keep going or will he just fade away? I thought that was so prophetic and i wanted to get your thoughts on that quote there's an answer to it now right because harvey did die and i think he's still very much alive uh 
the fact that there's a statue of him in Cleveland in front of the public library is wonderful, you know. And his wife, Joyce Brabner, is responsible for getting that all done. You know, Harvey, uh, it was like, that was always one of my dream projects. That um, I remember when I found his comic books, American Splendor, and was just so moved by them, particularly one where he was contemplating suicide and ended up just sitting on the beach, looking out at the beach and thinking how profound the waves turning in was and how he could just keep going. And I was just like, wow, like, how do you capture like little short story? And it just felt so soulful. And I loved how, you know, he didn't write, he didn't draw the, the cartoons. He just wrote the stories and he had different artists illustrate them. So you saw these different aspects. And I was like, wow, that'd be so cool to make a movie where you actually had different actors playing Harvey, which wasn't going to be. Todd Solons did that later, you know, with, with um, Palindrome. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which yeah, is yeah. Madam on my Adam, yeah. uh, you know, race car. Because mm -hmm. in the in Palindromes, he, he, he does that. And it, it it making that movie was a lot like kind of that quote, you know, that it took, you know, uh, it, it was just, I had dreamed of making the movie and uh, I knew a comic book artist, uh, Dean Hasfield, who, um, you know, was essentially one of the office uh, administrators on the ice storm, but he he's since become a, a well-known well-regarded graphic novelist cartoonist and um he got hired to do a, a some work for harvey and he told them that i was always dreamed of making the movie and his wife called me one day and i optioned the material and couldn't figure it out we went down and we tried to we we filmed harvey and joyce and danielle the daughter and it was then that I realized the movie's not Harvey, but it's the family, and the real guy has to be in the movie. And that was the kind of eureka piece for me, where like you don't need to have eight actors; you just have the real Harvey, and the real people who populate his stories, and then you have actors playing them, because some of those characters, including Harvey, if you do them so well, people are like, oh no, that's too big like it's not real and then it's like okay so we tone down the performance and then you see harvey and you see oh my god it's so much bigger than <laughs> i imagined and you know finding paul giamatti and and uh, he wasn't hard to find he was he was we'd worked together already and he was doing lots of work but he wasn't who he uh, became after that movie um but letting you know hbo um, Colin Callender and Maude Nadler, who are the executives, let us cast them. We didn't know how to solve so many problems on that movie, and they gave us the courage to keep, uh, not courage, the permission to go explore without knowing. Um, and Harvey, through the midst of it, like he had just retired, he would sleep on, he would come to set because we took all of his furniture and stuff <laughs> and just hang out and then fall asleep on set. And like Harvey, like the, the real guy would be sleeping right there. When we left, he got really depressed. Mm. And, you know, con you know, ev evidently like threw himself downstairs and different things happened. And he had no faith in the movie. Like, like even when he first watched it, he watched it first in my office. He was like, eh, "Like good luck with that." Which I would imagine his response would be, though. Yeah, 
until Sundance, right? And at that screening, you could tell the audience just loved the, the movie. And we got, you know, wonderful standing ovation. Al Gore was there, different things like that. And like, and you watched the weight of the world, 15 years, just fall off of Harvey's shoulder. Mm. Like he stood up stronger, his skin got tighter. He was handsome. He was <laughs> like, somehow he lost 15 pounds. Like, I don't know what happened. Like he was transformed <laughs> by that, that screening. And during the course of like we brought him to Cannes. He had never been to Europe at that point. He got book commissions galore. It gave him a new lease on life. And I think that is entirely possible, you know, time and time again, that there are, like I always felt afterwards, every town, there's a remarkable small town hero that all it takes is talented artists telling their story. And we will recognize the gift that they gave us that we never saw before. And they too will have monuments erected in their honor you know, for saving us. There might be a monument of, a, of you know, throwing the keys out of the airplane like Daniel Johnston mm -hmm. did. Or they might just be like, you know, Harvey saying, well, I fade away. No, you won't fade away. You're here to stay. This episode of Intermission is brought to you by Paul Schrader's Ruling Thunder. Just let it slide, Major. They don't have any right to live. There's a storm brewing in this man. They took his arm. They took his family and his soul. His anger is building, and it's going to explode. Now, from Paul Schrader, the author of Taxi Driver, comes a new and shattering film about a man poised on the brink of violence. Ruling Thunder, starring William Devane as Charles Rain. He has a purpose. He has a plan. It's only a matter of time. I found them. Who? The man who killed my son. I'll just get my gear. Coming to a screen near you in the year 1977. I just watched In the Bedroom for the first time uh, just this week, and it broke my heart. I try my best. It depends. I, I try to not read about movies prior. Like this one, I actually had zero context of plot, so I was thoroughly surprised. And um, yeah, I didn't know where it was going at all. So I was very sad. Um, but I just wanted to hear about your experience with that movie and making it and kind of what your takeaway was without maybe giving too much of the plot away because I want other people to experience what I experienced. You know, it's interesting. Like it, it once was, you know, back when Netflix was a DVD delivery service, it reigned for like three years as a top American independent film on their service. Like people totally dug it. And I think it's because it is both a, a thriller and very much a true life type story drama with deep characters. There are converging paths that made it also like an important work for everybody who was, was on it. It started for me when uh, I was doing Nicole Hall of Center's first movie, Walking and Talking. Mm -hmm. um, Catherine Keener and Anne Heche and Leah Shriver and Todd Field, right? So people remember the women. They they remember Liev, but they kind of forget that Todd Field, the director, was once an actor. And the reason he's in that movie is my 
assistant at the time fell in love with him in Ruby in Paradise, Victor Nunez's beautiful uh, um, film that won Sundance. And he, he, he was in it. And Kelly Miller, the, the, my assistant, was just like, Ted, Nicole, you got to bring Todd Field in. And I was like, he's not, we can't find him anywhere. To that. She found him. She got him on the phone. She got him into an audition. He got the role. And oftentimes, like, you know, as a producer, you have these conversations where you're standing next to the, the actor. And the actor says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I really want to do is direct. And the producer says, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've got a call. Right. But Todd, somehow what he said, like, it totally registered, rang a bell. I tracked it. And he said, you know, I really want to adapt this writer, Andre Debuse. Andre Debuse happened to be like my dad's drinking buddy. <laughs> they both uh, taught at the same school. I grew up with his kids. Uh, the uh, I have many uh, fond memories. And Andre had had a tragic accident. Like one night coming home, and he he was like a successful uh, writer, short stories, novels. Uh, one time coming home from Boston, there was he saw a car stopped on the left hand lane of the highway, and like it had somehow like run over or knocked over a motorcycle, and the car couldn't move. The person was hurt, and he got out of his car and he was talking to the driver trying to figure out. And another car came, slammed in, and uh, ruined his legs for the rest of his life. He couldn't walk. He uh, was wheelchair-bound ever since. Kept writing, you know, um, stayed in the same area. And uh, Todd wanted to adapt a story of his. And that, that short story for In the Bedroom, it's, not, it's called Killings. I believe, okay. um, not to give anything away, um, starts uh, actually like the view. It's it's in a cemetery, but the view that he describes is the view from the house I grew up in. And uh, it's also like this uh, wonderful, this part's on the movie. I'm pretty sure it's the same story. It's a divorced dad in a car having just dropped off the kids and they stayed in the car talking, and he realizes the car is fogged up from their breath. So when he's wiping it away, he's wiping away the breath of the kids that he loves and he can't quite see, you know, um, which is also like nice. But it also speaks of the, we lived up on a big hill along a river, and it speaks of the apple which would cross the way, and that, you know, it was our view. Um, so, so that was the story. So I felt a real connection to it. And it was Andre. And when, uh, when Andre was uh, the last person other than my mom to see my dad before my dad died. And when I went to see Andre about the story, uh, he said, you know, your dad and I, the last words to your dad, your dad said to me was, you know, we never did write that screenplay. Like they had wanted to make a movie together and they never made it. And so 
you know, basically we all got excited to, to, to make that film. Todd, you know, like you see it now, like when we talk about uh, total cinema, about Kubrickian, you know, being able to work on all different levels, we see that in his work, most notably with Tar. Incredible. Yeah. And, um, but he had yet to direct anything. He, there was some other stuff that he had done there. I can't even remember this, the name of this movie. He did a movie about, he, as an actor, about an EMT um, guy, like on drugs, mm-hmm. um, that is a lot like that Nicolas Cage Scorsese bringing out the dead, except this was done beforehand for a tenth the budget. And frankly, it's better. <laughs> like it, it's awesome. It's an awesome movie. I remember seeing it. And it was like, you know, Todd was super smart, super considered. And um, when he delivered the script, and he also delivered a lookbook, and the way that script was, the, it was his draft of the script, the way the script was written, and the way it corresponded with the lookbook, I had no doubt that he was a director. Like he so was able to communicate his vision. But it's really hard to get a first time film made. We had great partners who trusted in this. But then crazy things too, like we couldn't cast the Tom Wilkinson role. Mm -hmm. Tom got cast three days before shooting began. Three days before shooting began. He came in. He said it, like he was okay without her. He just needed to walk around the town for a day. He's British. He learned the, the, the main accent. He walked around town and he got nominated for an Oscar, like his first nomination. That film, which was made for about $3 million, got five Oscar nominations, um, including a Best Picture. Didn't win, but not bad for your first feature. <laughs> it was the first film by a first-time director to get the National Board of Review Best Director since, like, Stanley Kubrick had gotten it or something wow. like It was, like, so long back. Like, it, uh, it was nice. Um, but we never had enough money. It was really hard and brutal. And Todd knew what he wanted. The hardest thing in an independent film is when your director knows what they want. (laughs) Because when they know what they want and they're right, it's so hard to actually get it and deliver it. Money's tight, time is tight, tensions are high. And Todd, you know, had had worked with, with Stanley Kubrick on Eyes Wide Shut and wanted everyone focused and committed the way it was on that set. But he wasn't yet Stanley Kubrick and we weren't paying people well and we were out in the middle of nowhere. I don't think it was yet cell phone time, like, you know, but everyone carried newspapers and books and all that and Todd didn't want people doing that. He wanted all of us working towards what was happening on the set, which made it all really hard. It was right, but it was really hard. But I think you see through in that, like, Oh, I didn't even say the hardest part of that story, too. But you see in that that everything is chosen. There aren't accidents in that movie. Sometimes movies are blessed by happy accidents. But that movie is selected. 
right, and designed and chosen. Everything is working in service. We brought that film to Sundance. It wasn't your typical Sundance movie because it wasn't young people. It was older people, Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson in the kind of core roles. Um, and we were in debt. If we didn't sell the movie, we were fucked. <laughs> and uh, we sold the movie to Harvey Weinstein. And Harvey in those days was known for something else than what he's known now. He was known as Harvey Scissorhands for cutting up people's movie. But in the contract, I had final cut. And Todd and I had some changes we wanted to make. So we, we get, because in some ways we didn't really get to watch it until Sundance. So we were able to say, yes, we would recut the movie and we would make it shorter because we knew we wanted to take like a minute or two out. And I had final cut. And that's basically when hell began on that movie because we sold that movie in January. By August, like uh, what 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 started on that film was, uh, taught you know it's like okay you got to recut the movie, so we and then we'll test it. We recut the movie, we tested it. I can't remember the exact score, but it was nowhere near what Harvey wanted. But it was for me like one of my best testing movies, so I was like super happy. And Harvey was like, "No, I know what you did. Like you 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 deliberately, you know." didn't give me what I wanted. I'm going to recut the movie. Todd is one of the most disciplined filmmakers, period. And in getting to the cut of the movie, he considered every possible option. I've gone through it with him. We were desperate to make the movie short. I think it was like two hours, 22 minutes long. Uh, we, we couldn't. And like I remember saying on that, like sometimes shorter is just shorter. It's mm -hmm. not better. And we tried everything. Harvey recut it. He took like 30 minutes out of the movie, tested it, and our movie tested better. And then he got even more angry, right? So everything stopped. And we were lucky that we had uh, people at the company of Merrimax at the time who were totally on our side, who knew what our movie was, believed in our movie, and championed it. But they had to deal with this boss that was challenging. And so one of them, uh, I think it was Mark Gill, who ran companies on his own later, called us and at a certain point said, look, here's the deal. Harvey's going to be at uh, the uh, Mercer Street Hotel. He's going to be having dinner there with Marty Scorsese and Thelma Shoemaker and all of that. Todd, you have to show up and confront him there that's the only way that you'll get an answer from him and it was like august 30th the movie is supposed to come out in the beginning of november like we're not yet like we're out of time todd lived in la this was happening in new york todd wisely but like did not take another job because he and he was an actor he was turning down work, going broke, having to remortgage his house because if he took his eyes off the ball, he'd lose it, right? So he stayed focused, stayed on it, did what was asked, got on the plane, flew it. Oh, Harvey, and he's an actor. So, like, <laughs> and, and, you know, and he was like, Harvey was like, oh, sit down. Do you know Marty and Thelma and that sort of stuff? No, no, hello, hello. 
Um, and then Todd was like, my, Harvey, are you going to let me finish my movie? Like, got like, I was like, oh, Todd's made, I'm not going to do an impression because I can't do him. Todd, Todd's made a great movie, but it's too long. Look, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to let Marty see it. And whatever Marty says, like, that's what we're going to do. Except if he decides for you, then we're going to still do what I want. You have to agree. And so Todd said, fine, let Marty see. Because, like, you figure, what do I have got to lose? I was kind of thrilled because I was then supposed to call Thelma, and she was a hero of mine. Um, so I called Thelma and was like, yes, we've seen the movie. We love the movie. There's some changes we think can fit. Like, I'm going to talk to Marty. I'm going to get back to you. Nothing happens. I call again. It's like, yeah, we can't talk. Like, what is going on? Why is this happening? Just goes totally silent again. Then one day we get a phone call, and it's Harvey. I get a phone call. It's like, you got to get everyone over to my office tomorrow, and we're going to watch the film, and we're going to lock the picture. I'm like, what? So we all go in. Todd has to fly back again. And you would go in, and this is like, things aren't digital yet, right? He has these uh, office set with two stacks of decks, videotape decks. And he's going through the film, cut, like, this is my cut, this is your cut, back to back. And the, uh, like, very early on, like, he has this horrible blunt cut. And I say, Harvey, that's a horrible blunt cut. And he's like, shut the fuck up, Hope. You were going to produce my movie, except I'm going to now have Anthony when he directs, right? I'm going to direct the movie. I was going to have you produce it. But I'm going to have Anthony Magella produce it now because at least that way it will be under three hours long, right? <laughs> Don't open your trap. And like, ah. But I knew that Harvey had already directed a movie. And curious enough, like he directed a movie. I forget what it was called. Um, but even though he was supposed to be a great d distributor, he directed a very Jewish-themed movie that he released on Rosh Hashanah. Hello? Like, what are you doing? Like, you're supposed to be genius. Like, no one's going to show up. No one showed up. Like, but he didn't. That was, he wanted to do his second first movie. But this whole thing where the cuts go back on, back and forth, back and forth. I get to speak. Harvey starts to get bored. We're winning the argument. And at a certain point, he goes, just like, fuck it. You can have your movie. Just make sure two and a half minutes are cut out of it. That's what we wanted to do. Done. So we win our movie, right? And that was like the 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 key and all that sort of stuff. It's like this is the culture, this is the environment. Whatever you got to do, we're gonna have to be. Because in the end, what you need to come out of that is you have to want him to promote your movie. Mm -hmm. So our little movie that we made opens. The real circumstances were twofold. One, Harvey was going after, I think, his 11th Best Picture nomination in the row. He had wanted Gangs of New York. Mm. It wasn't finished. He had Ice Harvest with um, Kevin Spacey. It wasn't a good movie. He had Emily, which was a great movie, but was in French. It wasn't mm. going to be a Best Picture. And he had our movie. When the... In uh, as the award season goes on, like I remember watching the SAG Awards, and there were three commercials in a row for ice uh, for for in the bedroom, because Harvey bought them all, thinking he had all these movies, and in the end he had one horse in the race, and it was us. 
So this little movie that he bought for like a million or two million dollars that cost three million to make, he spent twenty million dollars marketing and pushing that movie. It made thirty two at the box office, so like it was a, a win for everybody. But he was so locked in. But the other thing that made that film successful was something I'd wish on nobody, and it was such a interesting thing to observe was Todd and I had bonded over really wanting to make a, a movie that captured what grief was. That wanting a feeling at the end, how the weight of grief led people to do things that were mm -hmm. outside of their, beyond their comfort zone. We knew that it was actually a movie that captured and showed the price you pay for violence. However, something else had happened before that movie came out, and that was September 11th, mm. that year. That movie came out in November. And what people saw was not a movie that dealt with the, the results uh, of violence. What they saw was a tale of revenge. And when we tested the movie, in the final stage, that's what people said. I was so glad that he went out and got that motherfucker. That wasn't the movie we made. Mm -mm. They saw the movie they wanted to see. In time, now that you've seen it now, like you don't have that, yeah, don't context, have that context anymore. And it, it, the movie, you get to see the movie we made. But the $32 million of box office we got, they all saw a different movie because of their mindset at the time. It's fascinating. You know? So yeah, you have the movie you make and you have the movie that they want to see and they might, you might think they're the same thing, but they aren't always. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. That was a fascinating story. Um, this has been incredible. I loved getting to talk to you. Um, do you have, just to wrap this up, anything you'd like to plug, whether that's a project, oh, yeah. a movie, director, whatever? This is a great day for me because I have two things opening today. Amazing. Uh, today... Um, we talked a little bit about Roger Ross Williams' Cassandra, and that opens in theaters. I think it's on like 75 different screens across the, the country. And next week, it'll be on the Amazon streaming platform. But it's a beautiful film. It played Sundance. It played Telluride. It has a huge Rotten Tomato score. It's fresh. Um and Gael Garcia Bernal is wonderful in that role. Really uh, remarkable performance that people should see. And then tonight, which will be four days ago, whenever you, this, this airs, so go back in your time machine and turn on your television and put it on public television and watch American Masters and watch Jerry Brown, The Disruptor, a documentary by Marina Zenovich on uh, the four-term former governor of California, many-time uh, presidential candidate, boyfriend of Linda Ronstadt at one point, <laughs> and really an incredible uh, example of a selfless politician who can work across the aisle and get things done. You know, to work with, quote, his enemies and find common ground it's not an accident that between his second and third terms, he studied Zen Buddhism. <laughs> you know, like mm. he's a super unique 
uh, character. And when Marina asked for my help, um, I was like, yeah, maybe this movie would, would inspire people. This man would inspire people to, to lead a life of selfless giving to a better world, which is what this man did. So I'm really pleased to be a uh, part of it. And when we went to uh, see it, and my wife got to see the movie, also for what it's worth, she was like, Jerry Brown was hot. <laughs> so, that? That's the big um, takeaway. The, uh, and then uh, ulti- like uh, today in real life, not podcast land, it's uh, September 15th. And on September 29th and 30th, uh, and and then basically for the next two weeks across the country, we're uh, going to film festival screening Invisible Nation, my wife Vanessa's uh, second documentary feature film as a director. She also was a producer with me, along with many other folks. And um, that tells the story of um, Taiwan's peaceful transition into the most vibrant democracy in Asia, after the longest period of martial law in the history of the world, um, and how they endure now under this uh, very careful dance between the authoritarian regime of China, who would like to invade them, and the U.S., who uh, claims protecting them while doing a tremendous amount of business with China uh, to undermine that protection at the same time. It's... uh, Focus is the female president, two-term, incredibly popular president, President Tsai, uh, in Taiwan. And you see a kind of remarkable method of leadership um, based on, but, but in some ways I would say like compassion and understanding as opposed to aggression. She stands firm. Uh, you know, uh, to that the authoritarian power that threatens an invasion, uh, but at the same time has uh, first country to have a same-sex marriage uh, law in in Asia, um, doing lots of uh, transitional justice, uh, owning up to the mistakes and violence in the in the past. Uh, you know, really making it a pluralistic democracy. Um, unlike many others, and one that, frankly, we wish could be that way in America right now. Um, so uh, super pleased to to bring that film out and to bring it out to the world. It's been a, a long labor of love. And in some ways, I think it might be the most important movie I've ever made. Incredible. I'm so excited to see it. Thank you. Well, thank you again. All right. And we're done. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow our Instagram at It's Intermission Time and share with your friends. As always, Intermission is produced by Duzil Chu and Olivia Deaton, directed by Kaden Laroki, and of course, hosted by yours truly, Megan Braun. Be sure to say your prayers and visit the synagogue on all platforms.